quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Defunding the police is not the answer, says the Democratic president. The lead starts right now. Tough talk. President Biden in New York in the wake of two police officers gunned down in a particularly dangerous time for cops and for cities in America. Biden laying out a plan to try to tackle gun violence. One of his top advisors will join us to discuss. Plus, a U.S. raid on ISIS months in the making. New details about how the terrorist group's top leader was killed, along with tragically several children. CNN is on the ground with a look at how the facts line up with what the Pentagon is claiming. Also, snow, ice, sleet, even possible tornadoes, the latest on the dangerous winter storm impacting nearly half the country right now. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our national lead, President Biden, this afternoon announcing his new plans to combat gun violence and declaring, quote, the answer is not to defund the police, unquote, after an alarming rise in homicides and gun crimes in many of America's biggest cities. The president bringing together federal, state, and local officials in New York City to detail new steps his administration wants to take, including a new initiative on so-called ghost guns, what are do-it-yourself firearms of a sort, often put together with parts sold online. Mr. Biden also calling for enhanced tools, training, and funding for law enforcement officer, and for tens of millions of dollars for community policing programs. Last year, Ten major U.S. cities recorded more homicides than in any previous year on record, from Portland to Philadelphia. And Biden's trip comes in the wake of two New York City police officers being gunned down on the job. CNN's Caitlin Collins starts us off today in New York with a look at the range of new plans unveiled today aimed at reducing crime across the country. President Biden in New York City to address a national wave of violent crime. Enough is enough because we know we can do things about this. The president hosted by newly minted New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a like-minded politician when it comes to policing. Mayor Adams, you and I agree. The answer is not to abandon our streets. That's not the answer. The answer is to come together, police and communities, building trust and making us all safer. The answer is not to defund the police. Biden instead calling for more police funding, not yet approved by Congress, as he toured the New York Police Department headquarters and a crime prevention center in Queens. I want him to uh, acknowledge and see what I call the rivers that are feeding the sea of violence in our city and in our country. Mayor Adams, you say that gun violence is a sea fed by many rivers. Well, Uh, You know, uh, I put forward a plan to dam up some of those streams. Biden applauding the officer who shot the gunman in a recent ambush that left two New York officers dead. The president's focus was on New York today, but he's also directing U.S. attorneys nationwide to boost resources for combating violent crime as the Justice Department is promising to amp up prosecutions on so-called ghost guns when a gun is assembled by the user and can't be traced. If you commit a crime with a ghost gun, Not only are state and local prosecutors going to come after you, but expect federal charges and federal prosecution as well. 
And this doesn't violate anybody's Second Amendment right. When the amendment was passed, it didn't say anybody can own a gun and any kind of gun and any kind of weapon. Today's effort, part of a larger attempt by Democrats to strike the delicate balance between addressing violent crime and reforming excessive policing. We can't expect you to do every single solitary thing that needs to be done to keep a community safe. It's time to fund community policing to protect and serve the community. And Jake, when you heard the president talk about that funding that he wants to boost today, we should note Congress has not yet approved that. And of course, when it comes to police reform, his efforts so far in Congress have stalled. That legislation has not gone anywhere. And the White House did confirm today that he is looking at executive orders on that front to try to achieve at least some of it, though it remains to be seen what those executive orders actually look like. Right now, the president is at PS 111 in Queens. He was talking about a community violence prevention program. That is kind of what he's talked about as part of this two-pronged effort to try to combat the wave of crime that you've seen nationwide. All right, Caitlin Collins in New York for us with the president. Thanks so much. Let's discuss with senior advisor to President Biden, former Congressman Cedric Richmond. Mr. Richmond, good to see you again. So Frankly, we've heard politicians say over and over again over the years that they're serious about combating gun violence only for the American people to see little change actually happen in Washington. Tell any viewers who might be skeptical why they should believe this time is going to be different. Because most of the time when you hear politicians talk about it, uh, they're only talking about the end of the system where the police are involved or the prosecutor is involved. I think the unique thing about this proposal and why Uh, The Biden plan, I think, is the right solution, is that it looks at the root cause and it offers different solutions in terms of community violence intervention, substance abuse, mental health, uh, after school programs, summer job programs, using actual uh, community violence interrupters that will actually help diffuse problems before they ever happen. And uh, President Biden has never been shy about saying that he thinks we need more police in our communities, but they should be out of their cars. They should be a part of the community. You can have uh, safe communities that have a great relationship with the law enforcement officers that patrol them. So we want more officers, but we want them to patrol in a constitutional manner, though. So several major U.S. cities have seen record crime, record homicides in the last year, including my hometown, Philadelphia. Why shouldn't voters in those cities not only blame President Biden, but blame their Democratic mayors. Well, they shouldn't. It's a bigger problem that it takes investment uh, in community. So when you look at uh, whether it was our American Rescue Plan or whether it was Build Back Better or uh, whether it was the bipartisan infrastructure bill, one, you have to improve communities. You have to invest in families. You have to invest in opportunity and education and all of those things. And those things have been neglected uh, for some time. And if you look at Uh, What we're dealing with here in Washington in terms of just pure Republican obstruction, those things that we want to invest in, whether it's child care, whether it's early child education, those things get at the root cause of crime. And so you're not going to solve it strictly by police and district attorneys. You have to invest also. And those investments have been lacking and we're not going to leave our communities behind. And that's why we have such a focus on investing in all communities. Well, let's talk about Republicans, because uh, one of the provisions that could have passed in the last 10 years, but was not able, uh, was closing the gun show loophole uh, for private sales, making sure that they had to do a background check uh, already um, 
the stores at gun shows had to do it, but not private sales. Uh, that was pushed forward by two NRA members, or at least people supported by the NRA, Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, Senator Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the issues is Democrats push these big sweeping uh, packages that won't get 50 votes, much less 60. The Toomey Manchin uh, bill to close the gun show loophole, I, I just was talking to uh, Senator Toomey. He says that White House, the White House reached out about a year ago to talk about it, and he hasn't heard from you guys ever since. That's something that you could change right now, and Toomey thinks you could get uh, 10 Republican votes. How come you haven't been doing that? Well, we have pushed for that. We've pushed for that alongside other things. This is not a either-or proposition. And when Toomey and Manchin introduced that bill, I was in the House of Representatives. And you know who stopped it? It was the House uh, majority, which was the Republicans at the time. We are open. We, we have governed in a bipartisan fashion. I think that you have seen People of Republican members come down to the White House, bipartisan infrastructure bill. We're willing to be bipartisan on uh, making sure we have safe gun regulations. And it's easy for Toomey to say that there's 60 votes to do it to uh, get past the filibuster. But the proof is in the pudding. Uh, You have to show it. We are willing to continue to fight for banning assault weapons, making sure that you don't have those straw purchases limiting, uh, banning ghost guns. All of those things are comprehensive in terms of protecting communities and making them safe. Right. And the gun show loophole is one of those. But that's, you're making my point for me, which is here is something that can get 60 votes, at least according to Republican Senator Toomey. And you talked about a, a bunch of other things that you want to do that probably cannot get 60 votes. The way you got the bipartisan infrastructure deal was Democrats and Republicans coming together and crafting this legislation. And then it it passed with, with overwhelming bipartisan support, but you're not doing that with this uh, criminal, uh, this effort to combat crime or this effort to cut down on, on, on gun violence. And I'm saying you, you haven't talked to Toomey in more than a year about it or about a year on it, and here's an opportunity sitting right here, but you have to keep it focused and have Democrats and Republicans work on it. Well, I think that that's your assumption. Look, we are here to work with Senator Toomey or any other Republican senator that wants to look at Uh, stopping the flow of illegal guns in the community or dangerous guns in the community. But what I won't accept is that that's going to be enough. We have to stop the carnage that is happening in these American cities and too many communities like mine that are black and brown. And to pick and choose uh, on the Republican side what is palatable and what is not as palatable, let's look at what the experts, the law enforcement, everyone says will keep communities safe. And We are here to do it on a step-by-step basis if we need to, but we have not seen uh, that olive branch or the willingness of Republicans to take on the NRA in any form or fashion. And so I would welcome Senator Toomey to show the votes to get it done. Uh, We certainly won't stand in the way, and we'd support. Yeah, I mean, Toomey did take on the NRA to to do this, and I should just note I've been in this town for a long time, so if you... I first started talking about the gun show loophole in 1999 after Columbine, and it's still open, that gun show loophole. Cedric Richmond, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Coming up next, a stunning level of detail revealed about the U.S. raid on the leader of ISIS. Women and children caught in the drama, a U.S. chopper down, and the terrorist leader detonating himself in the hunt. Plus, Hall of Famer John Elway and other NFL executives responding to a coach suing the league and three other football teams for discrimination. Stay with us. 
In our world lead, a warning to terrorist groups around the globe. That's what President Biden is calling a U.S. Special Forces raid in northwest Syria today that killed the leader of the terrorist group ISIS, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi, one of the top terrorists in the world, as identified by the U.S. This was the biggest U.S. counterterrorism mission in Syria since the 2019 operation that killed his predecessor, former ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Syria's defense forces say 13 civilians, including six children, were tragically killed in today's raid. As CNN's Oren Lieberman reports, this operation took months to prepare and did not turn out completely as planned. A U.S. raid shattering the overnight hours in northwest Syria. Special forces going after the leader of ISIS, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi, a.k.a. Haji Abdullah. Last night's operation took a major terrorist leader off the battlefield and it sent a strong message to terrorists around the world. We will come after you and find you. President Joe Biden watched from the White House as special forces closed in on their target. The helicopters approached the three-story compound in the middle of the night, according to senior administration officials. Once on the ground, special forces warned civilians to clear out, evacuating 10 civilians, including eight children. Officials say al-Qureshi then blew himself up killing his wife and children and tearing the top of the building apart. His lieutenant, one floor below, was killed in an exchange of fire with U.S. forces. The Pentagon said a child was also killed on this floor, but wouldn't say how or by whom. Toward the end of the two-hour operation, officials say two members of an al-Qaeda affiliate were killed in an exchange of fire with U.S. forces. U.S. forces also having to destroy one of the helicopters on the ground after mechanical failures. Four civilians were killed in all, according to the Pentagon, and five combatants. That wasn't the plan. And I say capture the leader of ISIS. That was the intent of the mission. This raid was the biggest U.S. operation in Syria since the operation to kill Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in 2019, the original leader of ISIS. Al-Qureshi's background is a bit of a mystery. His exact birthplace and birth date unclear. He was in U.S. detention in 2008 before he was turned over to the Iraqis and, at some point, released. In March 2020, the State Department labeled him a specially designated global terrorist with a $10 million reward. He was responsible for the recent brutal attack on a prison in northeast Syria holding ISIS fighters. He was the driving force behind the genocide of the Yazidi people in northwestern Iraq in 2014. Al-Qureshi never left the third floor of the building in northwest Syria, except to bathe on the roof, officials said. By early December, intelligence officials believed they had pinpointed his location, and Biden authorized the operation. The White House called his death a blow to ISIS, but the terror organization, still suffering from the defeat of its self-declared caliphate in 2019, has plans to rebuild. General McKenzie said that although Haji Abdullah didn't have the same name recognition as the original leader of ISIS al-Baghdadi, he was just as dangerous and was involved in planning other ISIS operations. Meanwhile, U.S. officials say the next leader of ISIS will suffer the same fate. Jake. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon, thank you so much. Now let's go check out the reality on the ground. CNN's Arwa Damon reports that the story, what really happened, might be more complicated than what the Pentagon is saying. And we should warn you, the images in her report are graphic and disturbing. A small body is carried down the dark stairs. The rescue workers speak in thick whispers. Wait, 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 one warns. It's stuck. They gently coax a tiny child's corpse out from under a large slab of concrete. It's a little girl. Another small body, a boy, 
is carefully wrapped in a blanket. This is what is left behind after U.S. Special Forces conducted an overnight raid in Syria. Later, the White House announced that they had, quote, removed the leader of ISIS, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurayshi. But the reality of what happened is uglier than that simple statement, and the fog of war is filled with questions. The owner of the building says that two families lived here. One man, his wife, and three children. And his sister lived upstairs with her daughter, Abu Qutayba says. Seven bodies were found here. President Biden says it was al-Qurayshi who detonated a bomb, killing himself and his family. But were there more people in the house that night? We don't know yet, but in all, at least 13 people were dead in the raid's aftermath, including six children. Eyewitnesses described helicopter gunships hovering overhead for hours. Warnings to evacuate the house and surrender. Intense gunfire. Hearing multiple explosions. Light clashes occurred and then the helicopters struck with machine guns, this man remembers. One of the strikes was here and the rest were striking the targeted house. Did the U.S. forces fire on other buildings? Footage from the scene and the surrounding areas showed damage to multiple other buildings as well. This child's body, green socks on tiny feet, was ripped in half. Taking out ISIS's leader may be a win for America. It may put a temporary damper on ISIS's abilities. But ISIS will rise again, and the war on terror will leave more innocence in its wake. And that, Jake, is the very disturbing nature and the reality of these kinds of missions, in fact, of warfare as a whole. And we do need to recognize the innocent civilians whose lives have been lost. And we also do need to be asking questions when narratives don't exactly add up. And there has to be a certain measure of accountability. Arwa Damon reporting live from Istanbul for us. Thank you for that important report. Appreciate it. Just into CNN, sources detail what was said and what was not said when top Pence aides met with the January 6th committee. What did they reveal about the former vice president? Stay with us. Breaking news in our politics lead now. New details about what former vice president Mike Pence's team was willing to tell the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Sources tell CNN that Pence's top aides would not discuss direct conversations between Pence and former President Trump. CNN's Ryan Nobles has this new reporting for us. And Ryan, sources are telling you that the interviews with Pence's aides were not contentious, but the committee did not exactly get the answers they were looking for. Well, Jake, it depends on which topic area you are talking about. And in general, sources tell us that they did view these interviews with Greg Jacob, the former chief counsel to the vice president and his chief of staff, Mark Short. They viewed it as productive and that these interviews were not contentious. But there was certainly a line that both Jacob and Short were unwilling to cross at the direction of the former president and his attorneys. And essentially, they were not going to have 
uh, or disclose any information they knew about direct conversations between Pence and the former president or conversations that they may have had with the former president. And the committee knew this. They were prepared that there may be some privilege issues that both, both Short and Jacob were not going to be willing to go into, but that did not prevent them from asking them questions on a whole host of issues. Of course, Jacobs uh, and uh, Short are very important players in all of this. They were on the Pence staff in the days leading up to and on January 6th. Short himself was with the vice president here at the Capitol as he was evacuated as the riot was underway. So there's a lot of information that they know about that period of time that is relevant to the committee. They weren't able to disclose all of it, but I'm told that the meeting was productive and has been an important part of the investigation. Jake. Ryan Elbow's live for us on Capitol Hill. Thank you, sir. Vaccination rates among the ranks, the new approach by the U.S. Army when it comes to COVID shots. Plus, the vaccine in the works for kids under five. I'm going to talk to a doctor who advises the FDA, asking him what he thinks about the data he's reviewing so far. Stay with us. In our health lead, balancing, I'm sorry, battling the unvaccinated among the ranks. The U.S. Army announcing it's going to start discharging soldiers who refuse to get vaccinated unless, of course, they have an approved exemption or a pending request for an exemption. A handful of Army leaders, including two commanders, have already been shown the door. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports, even though 96% of U.S. soldiers are vaccinated, thousands of others could still lose their jobs. It's okay. Three-year-old Justin, still too young for a vaccine, but among the lucky ones, pulled through. Finish it up. 3,546 people were reported dead yesterday, killed by COVID. By summer, COVID could have claimed a million American lives. Most places, Omicron is now on the ebb. Alabama, the only state where case counts are climbing, Alabama also has the lowest percentage of fully vaccinated people in this country. By the way, the U.S. Army now discharging soldiers who refuse the vaccine order and are not pending a final decision on an exemption. Meantime, about half of Americans now eligible for a booster haven't gotten one. So 84 million people got vaccinated, but for whatever reason, not boosted. I don't have an easy explanation for that. That's one of the reasons why we keep trying to put the data out. Like the benefits of the booster in significantly reducing your chance of death. Israeli researchers now claim a fourth Pfizer dose was instrumental in preventing hospitals from being overwhelmed during their Omicron surge. It's a preprint study. Here... Hospitalizations highlighted by the White House as the key metric they'll watch while weighing when to lift restrictions, like mask mandates. What I expect, and I hope what we'll see from the CDC, is clear guidance about what to do in the upcoming months. Again, I'm hoping this is going to be the last surge we will have to deal with. We don't know. By the way, this is Bellevue, Washington. A gas station clerk argues with a customer who refuses to wear a mask. They tumble outside. She pulls a gun. Now, it is the Super Bowl here in Los Angeles next weekend, of course, and they are going to be handing out free N95 masks to all the fans. It is local law that you really have to wear one in the stadium. How they police that with 80,000 people, we'll see. But the mayor of L.A. 
is among the officials just begging people to comply. Jake. Well, speaking of the mayor of L.A., Eric Garcetti, he's under fire for not wearing a mask. Tell us about that. Yeah, so he was photographed at a game last weekend with, I think, Magic Johnson, and Eric Garcetti was not wearing a mask. So he was asked about that, and his explanation is beautiful. He says he was wearing a mask for the entire game, but when people asked for a photograph, I hold my breath and put it there. There is 0% chance of infection from that. So hold your breath. That's from the mayor. Yeah, I don't think that's according to the CDC guidelines, but uh, all right, interesting stuff. Nick Watt, thanks so much. Uh, Rules for thee, but not for me. Uh, Let's bring in Dr. Paul Offit. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. He serves on the FDA Vaccines Advisory Committee. So, Dr. Offit, you have now seen some of the data Pfizer has presented uh, for uh, vaccinating kids under five years old, six months to, to four years old. Is it promising? What do you think so far? Well, we really haven't seen the data. I mean, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee will meet on February the 15th. Typically, the way this works is that there will be a submission from Pfizer, 50, 60 pages of all their data. And then the FDA will also look at all the data and have their own submission. We usually get those two submissions a a few days before the actual meeting, and then we'll have a better idea. What we're being asked to do is we're being asked to approve a three-dose vaccine after only really seeing the effects after of safety and efficacy effects after two doses, which is unusual. Oh, see, I thought that once uh, Pfizer made the announcement, they send the data to the advisory committee like you, advisory committee members, and then you have two weeks or so to, to look at it and then you meet. Otherwise, I don't understand why you guys wait two weeks. It seems like this is we're in the middle of a pandemic. People want to get their kids vaccinated. Why, why is the process uh, drawn out? Did, did they not have the data ready, Pfizer? So, so Pfizer submits the data to the FDA. The FDA then puts, pulls a team of people together who work pretty much round the clock to look at all the data, to look at every piece of clinical information for every child that either got vaccine or placebo, and then they put together their own document, and then those two documents go to the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, usually days before the actual meeting. That's oh, okay. The work. So the FDA is putting together their study after having received Pfizer's study. Is that right? Right. They want to make sure that, that, that Pfizer hasn't left out any information or misrepresented information. They want to make sure that they have look at all the data, every single piece of information, and not just accept Pfizer's summary of those. Oh, yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. I totally, I totally understand. Um, this is a, a different approach, uh, as you note, though, uh, than past vaccine recommendations, because Pfizer's asking the FDA to review this two-shot regimen when they already know that a third shot will likely be needed for optimal immunity. Um, Do you agree with this method? I guess it's uh, being done in the name of of speed and helping these kids as quickly as possible. Again, need to see the data. I mean, what what I guess we're arguing is really the the FDA that asked Pfizer to do this more than Pfizer asking the FDA to do this. So so presumably Pfizer has seen these data and are impressed enough that two doses are highly safe, highly effective, and that even though this is ultimately going to be a three-dose vaccine, they want to get our opinion as to whether we think you can start giving these vaccines now, knowing that that third dose will be given two months after the second dose, and let's just get a head start on this. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's odd. It's curious to see how this plays out. Uh, There's only, as you know, 22% of kids uh, ages 5 to 11 are vaccinated so far, even though that vaccine for kids 5 5 to 11 was approved in early November of last year. Are you worried that we're going to see the same low level of vaccinations for kids with kids under five? Yes. I mean, we've had a vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds since May. 
and about 55% of, the, of them are vaccinated. But you're right, I've had three months worth for the for the greater than five-year-old to be vaccinated. Only a little over 20% had. I would imagine it would be even less for the, for the less than five-year-old. It's too bad. If you look at the group that's least likely to be vaccinated in this country, it's people under 30. We need to get young people vaccinated. We haven't been very good at it. So you're a pediatrician. What do you tell hesitant parents who might be nervous uh, to vaccinate their, their toddler? No, I think people assume that not getting a vaccine is a risk-free choice. It's, it's just a choice to take a different risk. And although it's true that, that young children get infected less frequently and when they're infected, they're infected less severely, they can be infected severely and, and have uh, difficult outcomes, including uh, autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes. This is an unusual virus, and it's one you, you want to avoid, uh, but you need to be able to know that the vaccine is safe, safe, safe before you get it, and that's going to be the charge of our committee. The Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Morthy, says that he's more optimistic than ever that the end of the pandemic is, is in reach. Do you share that optimism? I do. I think we right now have about 90 percent population immunity from immunization or natural infection or both. We're heading into the warmer months. I do think things will come down and then we'll just have to define when we move from pandemic to endemic, which is basically when we feel that we can get back to our lives as normal. But we'll see. I think it, I think things are looking up. Yes. Dr. Paul Offit in the great city of Philadelphia, thanks so much. Good to see you, sir. That major winter storm is becoming more dangerous by the minute. It's pushing heavy snow and ice and pelting winds across much of the country. And now power outages are adding up. We have a live report on the weather next. In our sports lead today, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross is now responding to former head coach Brian Flores' explosive claim that Ross offered him big bucks to lose games in order to secure a better future draft pick. It's part of Flores' lawsuit against the NFL and three teams, including the Dolphins, over accusations of racial discrimination during the hiring process. Let's go right to CNN's Layla Santiago live outside Hard Rock Stadium where the Dolphins play. Layla, what does Ross have to say about the charge? Well, Jake Ross is calling it false and defamatory. So let's get right to his statement so you can uh, get a better idea of exactly what he says about this. He says, quote, we understand there are media reports stating that the NFL intends to investigate his claims and we will cooperate fully. I welcome that investigation and I am eager to defend my personal integrity and the integrity and values of the entire Miami Dolphins organization from these baseless, unfair and disparaging claims. But, you know, at the same time that the owner of the Miami Dolphins is saying that you also have some support for Brian Flores. And you see that on Twitter from some of the Miami Dolphins assistant coaches. You have uh, defensive back coach Gerald Alexander, as well as cornerback coach Charles Burke saying that they support him. They respect his character. They call him a true leader, one of the best leaders right now in the league. So you're hearing from the Miami Dolphins today, but really kind of getting a mixed bag of statements when it comes to Brian Flores and this lawsuit. You're also hearing from the Denver Broncos. We're hearing from John Elway, who was named in this lawsuit as one of those individuals who interviewed Flores back in 2019, an interview that Flores called a sham interview. He, too, says that the accusations and the claims made in this lawsuit are false. In this lawsuit, Flores says, uh, again, calling it a sham interview, that they showed up late and that they appeared disheveled. Here's what Elway said in his statement. He says, for Brian to make an assumption about my appearance and state of mind early that morning was subjective, hurtful, and just plain wrong. 
if I appeared disheveled as he claims, it was because we had flown in during the middle of the night, immediately following another interview in Denver, and we're going on a few hours of sleep to meet the only window provided to us. So take note of this, Jake, because this lawsuit was filed Tuesday, and today we are still hearing for the first time from people who are critical in some of the claims made by Brian Flores here. And Layla, Flores' attorneys have been reaching out and talking to other former uh, black NFL coaches, uh, former coaches with similar claims as Flores. Are, are they expected to sign on to the lawsuit? Flores last night told CNN that he is hearing a lot of support from black uh, coaches and that he has heard similar accounts of this. So that's something that we could see. But I want to take note of Marvin Lewis, who spoke to CNN this morning. Listen to his account. Tuesday morning, uh, Coach Billick walks in my office and said he got off, got off the phone with uh, Ozzie Newsom and uh, uh, the Panthers would like me to come down and interview for the position. And I said, Brian, uh, I heard last night they're going to name Foxy the coach on Friday. And he went back and they talked to the people. And, no, 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 that's not true. Well, I went down there and went through it all and, and everything. And uh, But they named John the head coach on Friday. Now, Marvin Lewis, the former coach of the Bengals, says that he does not plan to join this lawsuit, but definitely is echoing some of those sentiments of feeling like some of these interviews are sham interviews that are just there to satisfy the Rooney rule, which is a rule in place by the NFL that says teams have to interview uh external as well as minority candidates here. So something that is central in this lawsuit from Brian Flores, who compares the NFL to a plantation, a league that is run with 70 percent of black players with only one black coach. Jake? Leila Santiago in Miami, thank you so much. Internationally today, a massive winter storm stretching across three time zones is to blame for more than 260,000 people without power right now. Snow, sleet, and ice have crippled a stretch from Texas up to New England. Portions of major interstates are closed. More flights canceled today than in any day last year. A driver in Springfield, Illinois, had a close call. His car got stuck on icy train tracks. Thankfully, he made it out before the train hit his car. CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam is in Indianapolis for us today. Derek, this weather is creating all sorts of dangerous, dangerous situations. Yeah, you know, Jake, we've had blistering winds, blinding snow, and a sheet of ice here across the central portions of the Hoosier State, including where I'm standing here at Monument Circle, downtown Indianapolis. The storm is massive, stretching over uh, 25 U.S. states, impacting over a third of the U.S. population. Uh, and it is just incredible to see what it's done. Last night when we drove from South Bend to Indianapolis, the tr uh, precipitation changed over to rain. And now that the temperatures have plummeted, this is what we're left with, a complete sheet of ice. And this is the story, especially as the further south you travel, places like Memphis into Louisville. In fact, the UPS Worldwide Hub within that area has uh, closed down some of its uh, operations there because of the ongoing ice storm in Louisville. That is how bad it is. We have seen jackknifed trucks and abandoned vehicles on the side of uh, Interstate 70. Uh, some of the local media reporting that. Of course, that's creating all kinds of uh, headaches across the uh, interstates and highways in and around Indianapolis. Stretching from the northeast all the way to Texas, the storm is massive. It's not going to get above freezing here where I'm standing, get this, until Sunday afternoon. So it's going to take a while for this ice to melt. Jake? 
Derek, we're seeing the number of power outages go up, mostly in Texas. Uh, What makes certain areas such problem spots? Well, think about the ice that is accumulating on uh, the branches and some of the trees, especially points south of here. We're talking Louisville, Memphis, into Arkansas, the Ohio Valley, Mississippi Valley. Those areas have seen up to a quarter to a half an inch of ice. That weighs down these branches, the electrical poles, and with the winds that we're feeling behind this system, every once in a while we get these gusts just pelting our face. That is what takes down tree limbs and electricity lines, and that causes the power outages. Last I checked, Tennessee, 150,000 people without power. Four hours ago, that was only 25,000 people, so you know where this is going. All right, Derek Van Dam, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Next, the U.S. intelligence noting the Kremlin's plans to create a video of a fake attack, how that could have escalated an already tense situation very quickly. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the special invitation for Ivanka Trump. The door was open for her to speak to the January 6th committee today. How the panel might proceed if she and others ignore their request to appear. Plus, a new arms race. How the Pentagon is adding pressure on U.S. companies to create a hypersonic system as other countries test their hypersonic capabilities. And leading this hour, Putin's plans for a fake attack, according to the Pentagon, which says it's concerned about a Russian plot to frame the West with a graphic propaganda video staged to look as if NATO forces launched a deadly attack on Russia. As CNN's Matthew Chance reports, the U.S. is hoping that coming forward with this alleged scheme will blunt the impact of any possible fake pretext that Russia might use to invade Ukraine. This is the latest front in Russia's unrelenting buildup near Ukraine's borders. Joint military drills in neighboring Belarus, a close Kremlin ally, where NATO says there's been significant movement of an expected 30,000 Russian troops in recent days. It's the biggest deployment there since the end of the Cold War. This, as the Kremlin tells CNN, more US forces in Eastern Europe simply pump up tension in the region and that Russia is worried. We're talking about the deployment of American soldiers in European countries near our borders. It's clear these are not steps to de-escalate tensions. On the contrary, these actions elevate tensions. But if there's one country that should be feeling tense, it's Ukraine. This is latest video showing special forces being trained in the snow, released by its Ministry of Defense. Ukrainian officials insist they're ready for any Russian attack, but are downplaying talk of a conflict. The situation is under control. The number of Russian provocations has decreased recently. In the past 21 days, not a single Ukrainian soldier has been killed by the enemy. But U.S. intelligence continues to assess an armed conflict is being planned, amid new warnings of a possible false flag operation although the timing is no longer being referred to in public as imminent. Ukrainian officials say that's an important diplomatic result and will help calm any panic. But with Russian forces now massing near Ukraine on multiple fronts, it may be the calm before the storm. Well, Jake, tonight's European diplomats tell CNN that those Russian troop deployments near the Ukrainian border 
inside Belarus are a big worry and would be a crucial piece if Russia intends to make a quick strike here, the Ukrainian capital, which is less than two hours away. Back to you. Matthew Chance reporting live in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Joining us now live to discuss Democratic Senator Mark Warner from the Commonwealth of Virginia, who serves as chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. So CNN has learned uh, that the U.S. has intelligence that suggests to intelligence community officials that Russia has some sort of plan to produce a graphic propaganda video that would depict essentially a fake attack on itself, on Russia, and that the fear is that this could be used as a pretext to invade Ukraine. How sure are we of this intelligence? How reliable is it? Well, Jake, this is now, and I'm not going to comment on the specifics of uh, uh, the potential tape or what have you, but this is the third time in the last 30 days where the Americans or British have leaned very forward and saying, gosh, if there is a coup in Ukraine, this is due to Russia. And then the British followed up with actually naming specific Ukrainians that might have been put in uh, as president. And now this other evidence that there could be a false flag operation. I mean, this is never this kind of activity of this much forward leaning from the intel community, I think, is both effective and um, never been done before. And there's you combine that with two other factors. One, the fact that the administration over the last five to six months has rallied the balance of NATO. Uh, I can assure you four or five months ago, other than the British, the rest of NATO were not on board with the seriousness of this threat. They have now flooded the zone. There's not a day that goes by that a Western leader is not in Kiev with President Zelensky or somebody's engaging the Russian leadership. So you've got the forward leaning the IC flooding the zone diplomatically. And third, you have the evidence and worldwide media focus on Ukrainians, you know, literally training uh, in the event that there was a Russian invasion uh, to provide an insurgency. I think all three of these things have frankly caught Putin uh, a little bit off guard. So lawmakers received a closed door briefing today on the escalating situation in Ukraine. Uh, your Republican counterpart, Marco Rubio, I believe came from that briefing saying that he was convinced that Russia is going to invade Ukraine and very soon. Um, what's your response? Were you surprised by anything you learned today? There was nothing I heard today that I've not been hearing on a regular basis. Um, I think the Russians are very poised. I think it's been in the public domain uh, that something mid-February, they would probably have all the troops and uh, additional supplies there. I don't think you're going to see Putin as he goes to Beijing uh, in the coming days to open the Olympics, to start something in the middle of the Olympics. And there is a back end because if you get into the middle of March, the ground starts to unfreeze and the ability for Russian tanks um, to move into Ukraine is seriously stymied. So we've got a very difficult next two plus weeks. But I don't think anyone knows whether Putin has made the ultimate decision. And one of the things that I think we've all been concerned about, Putin has so isolated himself that we're not sure he was getting enough inputs. I think the fact that he is engaging not with just the Americans, he talked to the French President Macron the other day, and getting this uniform commitment from NATO, and even Putin being isolated, I think can't miss some of the the videos of Ukrainians training to be insurgents, uh, I think that has uh, hopefully created a pause. Now we have to figure out if there might be a path for some kind of exit ramp. 
President Biden's deploying some 3,000 American service members to, to Europe, um, Eastern Europe largely, but President Putin has amassed more than 100,000 forces in Russia near Ukraine's borders, plus 30,000 in, in Belarus. Um, these 3,000 Americans, I understand that they buck up the spirits of, of NATO allies, Romania, Germany, and Poland, but are they enough to deter Putin? Listen, we are not going to have troops on the ground in Ukraine. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. But we have been sending $600 million of aid last year, defensive aid, $200 million additional aid. We've seen some of our other NATO allies, the British, uh, the French, the actually the Span- Spanish, the Danish and the Dutch have sent ships. Uh, there's not been this kind of united um, NATO front uh, in recent memory. Now, will that be enough to stop the full forces of Russia if they choose to fully invade? Probably not. Um, but remember, this would be the first European war uh, with literally millions of Ukrainians with cell phones videoing uh, all of that and hopefully releasing it to the world. God willing, that won't happen. But that's that's not something that uh, Putin has experienced uh, in, in recent times. Combine that with, uh, uh, I think, the confidence building effect that Biden is sending the additional troops. Obviously, they're not going to affect what Russia does directly with Ukraine, but it reinforces the fact that uh, if this um, incursion were to somehow go beyond the geographic borders of Ukraine. We have Article 5 commitments to the Baltic states, to Romania, to Poland, to all of the uh, 30 nations that make up NATO. So you just said the Russians are poised. Did I hear that correctly? I'm saying this. Russia, you know, I think it is appropriate that the administration is taking, gotten rid of the word imminent. I think there was clearly, as the intelligence has been reported, there were indications that Russians might try a false flag operation. I think the constant pressure, diplomatic and united front of NATO, I think the intelligence community forewarning the Ukrainians and the world that if the Russians take these false flag actions, don't believe it is a Ukrainian action, or if there's a coup, don't believe the Russians aren't behind it. Uh, And I think the, frankly, the determination of the Ukrainian people in image after image showing that they are going to resist the Russians, even in those cities that maybe 15 years ago in the further east that had some pro-Russian sentiments. So I think that's all combined. Senator Todd Young, a a Republican of Indiana, um, said that he thought Germany is going to have to make a decision whether or not want whether or not they want to be. I'm paraphrasing here, but along the lines of they can either be with the West uh, and, and deal with our energy resources or be subjected to Putin's whims with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Do you agree? Is Germany going to have to make a decision here? Listen, I think we've all felt that Germany should not move forward with Nord Stream 2. And the fact that the Germans have, in effect, slowed down the bureaucracy in their own regulatory process, that Nord Stream 2 is literally months away from going live. And I do think the Germans will stand with the West should um, Putin invade Ukraine. That has been the result literally of months of work. I think we, your viewers should remember the NATO that um, Biden inherited a year ago was pretty much in shambles after a four years of a Trump administration that frankly was degrading NATO, you know, downplaying its importance and its significance. Um, this kind of crisis is what NATO was built for, and uh, I think it's responding. Now, again, the German chancellor, I believe, is scheduled to come in the coming days to Washington. I don't think he would be coming to Washington if he wasn't going to stand with the alliance. Democratic Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, thanks so much, sir. Appreciate it. Coming up, 
Putin's curious relationship with the leader of China and their closely watched meeting on the sidelines of the Winter Olympic Games. What do they have cooked up there? Plus, Ivanka Trump has the next move. How her pending response to the January 6th committee could send the investigation theoretically in a new direction. Stay with us. In our politics lead, today was supposed to be the first opportunity for Ivanka Trump to meet with the January 6th Select Committee investigating the deadly insurrection. But so far, that meeting has not been scheduled, and it's still unclear if the former president's daughter will cooperate voluntarily. Let's get right to CNN's Paula Reid. Paula, Ivanka Trump's cooperation at this point is is completely up to her. The committee has not issued a subpoena for her, uh, which under law would require her to appear and offer information. Where do things stand with the committee's negotiations? Well, Jake, the committee chairman, Benny Thompson, says, of course, they still want to talk to her in their original request for her voluntary cooperation. They suggested she could come in today, tomorrow, anytime next week. But we've learned they're still in the process of trying to schedule a possible meeting. Now, in that original letter to Ivanka, the committee laid out in great detail exactly why they want to talk to her. They want to ask her questions about specific conversations she had with her father and also ask him about his conduct in the days leading up to and on the day of the insurrection. Now, Jake, as you know, there is normally a back and forth and accommodation process to try to work out if witnesses can provide anything to lawmakers. But this is, of course, not a normal situation for many reasons, most of all because we are talking about the daughter of a former president and any sign that she will be willing to play ball in this investigation will be significant. And Jeffrey Clark, uh, the former Justice Department official who was pushing Trump's big lie, he met with the committee yesterday for nearly two hours. Tell us more uh, about what happened at that meeting. Well, Jake, this is a perfect example of how you can get a witness to come and sit before the committee, but doesn't always mean you're going to get any information. A source tells CNN that Clark made good on his promise to invoke the Fifth Amendment, invoking it over 100 times during this interview. And the source says that accounted for most of the questions that he was asked. Now, as you noted, his interview lasted for nearly two hours, but most of the key witnesses, their interviews in this investigation have lasted for close to six to eight. Will there be consequences? At this point, it's unclear if the committee will move ahead with a criminal contempt referral to the Justice Department. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Let's bring in our panel. And Abby, I want to start with the U.S. Special Forces raid in Syria earlier today. Uh, And the skepticism that journalists have uh, regarding the Pentagon's accounts of what happened. Take a listen to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who was asked for proof of the Pentagon's claims that the ISIS leader blew himself up. And in the process, he tragically killed several children, not the U.S. military. Listen uh, to how Psaki and then after that, uh, Ned Price from the State Department responded. And I know the U.S. has put out its statement that the, the that the you know they've detonated detonated the bomb themselves. But will the U.S. provide any evidence? Because there may be people that are skeptical of the events that took place and what happened to the civilians. Skeptical of the U.S. military's assessment when they went and took out an ISIS terror, the leader of ISIS. Yeah that they are not providing accurate information and ISIS is providing accurate information. So that's that's Jen Psaki squaring off with NPR's Ayesha Roscoe, who's who's often at this table, suggesting that if you are skeptical of what the U.S. Pentagon claims, then you are uh, on the side of ISIS. Uh, ISIS is providing accurate information. Separately, at the State Department earlier today, Ned Price was being pressed by the Associated Press's uh, Matthew Lee uh, about Russia. Take a listen. 
If you doubt, if you doubt the the credibility of the U.S. government, of the British government, uh, of other governments, and want to, uh, you know, find uh, solace in information that uh, the solace? Russians are putting out, uh, that is uh, <laughs> that is for wanna, you to do. Okay, so Abby. The reason I do that is because what the Biden administration is doing here is saying to journalists whose jobs are to be skeptical, and let us also note that U.S. intelligence and the Pentagon have not only gotten things wrong before, they have openly lied to the American people before. Then you have Saki and Price uh, saying, oh, so you side with our enemies. Yeah, I mean, come on. We all know that these types of statements require scrutiny because, frankly, I mean, if we're being generous... There is such a thing as the fog of war. Sometimes you believe something has happened when it has not. And so it is the job of us as journalists to ask the questions. And and these entities, government entities, often go back and then they find that what they told us, for example, about that other Afghanistan uh, strike after uh, during the uh, withdrawal that didn't turn out to have been executed the way that they said it was. And that happened just in the last 12 months. So the idea that this is somehow... Uh, out of the question or out of the ordinary to ask these kinds of questions, to probe on these issues, especially when we're talking about the deaths of children, is ridiculous. What was your response when you saw this? Well, I think it's a lot with what Abby said. I mean, there is a history of the U.S. government, either intentionally or not, misleading um, the American public when it comes to these serious military action. So it is the job of journalists on behalf of the public and behalf of the viewers and the readers to provide evidence or to ask for evidence and to ask for backup. Um, so the so the questioning from, you know, our colleague Aisha Rascoe was, I thought, terrific to speak for her. Um, and I think it, and it's just basically part of our job. And the more that the public understands just kind of the process of what we do and what our mandate is and what we're charged with doing, um, I think it's just better for the public. And we people to understand. questions of the Trump administration exactly. of course. as well. As you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's talk about it because we have two two communications professionals here uh, with Republicans and Democrats. What, What do you think? To Abby's point about the fog of war, I was at the Pentagon um, after we had a significant strike at Al-Assad, and there were, um, we said there were no casualties yeah. at the time. And, that, and afterward, we ended up having over 100 cases of t- traumatic brain injury because things change. More information comes out, and to double down that dogmatically and say, if you don't believe initial reports, you're on the side of our adversaries, is, is a position that's going to come back to bite them. Paul, is it, not, is it not the definition of patriotism for journalists to say, okay, the Pentagon or the intelligence community is saying this, prove it. Where's the proof? Right. Absolutely. And it's the definition of patriotism for Jen Psaki and Ned Price to say, hey, I back my guys and gals at the Pentagon. If you don't like that, tough luck. This is how the system well, works. One thing I would note, though, that some of the rep- reports were from the White Helmets, an NGO group within Syria, saying right. there were civilian casualties. So it wasn't even a, right. just a U.S. assessment. But Jen did not say, if you question me, you're on the side of I She didn't say anything like that. We got a lot of that from the Bush administration when, mm-hmm. uh, when uh, people like me After were opposing that, sure. yeah. that war in Iraq. But that's not that. This is the normal to and fro. One of the iron laws I had, I bet you saw this, let's say, was <laughs> the initial reports are always wrong. Mm-hmm. You just don't know how and where. So you got to be real careful well, if you're in the government I, side. So that's which what is why we I, I think I have no problem yeah. with Aisha's yeah. question. None whatsoever. But, I have no problem with Jen's but, answer. But, was it, but wasn't Saki saying that, the, that there's only two sources of information right. on the ground? ISIS or, or, or the U.S. military. There happened to have been, and we just saw this in Arwa Damon's piece, you know, you know, she's in Istanbul, but the piece was done in Syria. There are other people who live there besides the U.S. military and ISIS. There are civilians in Syria. But it's not far-fetched. In fact, it's longstanding practice for ISIS to blow themselves up and kill innocents, even their own family members. Uh, I think we Baghdadi saw it the Baghdadi did. Baghdadi I don't think did. anybody is questioning that. It's just right. a question of... Where's uh, the proof? Where's the proof? 
Right. And, and right. does the government have a responsibility to provide it when there are unintended consequences of a raid, whether they were they caused do, they by the United States government? Well, and the skepticism is a result of the fallout of Afghanistan when there was that strike where it ended up being wrong and it wasn't the target that they said they hit. So there is more scrutiny now and the Biden administration has to be ready for it. There's a long history in this country that long predates uh, the existence of everybody at this table except for me and Paul. <laughs> Of the U.S. government lying to the American people, lying for the right reasons, maybe, or because they had the wrong information or they're backing their guys. But it is our job to to challenge. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Uh, to Alyssa, today, the president, President Biden met with the New York City Police Department after a pair of officers were killed uh, in, in the line of duty. Biden's trying to turn the focus from crime to combating gun violence. Um, last hour, Cedric Richmond, one of the president's top advisors, told me that Republicans are too cozied up to the NRA, don't want to get anything done. Is there any path forward on preventing gun violence, on further gun restrictions that could keep them out of the hands of criminals? It's a great question. I think it's a politically savvy move of Biden to tackle gun violence rather than going after crime rates in cities. Uh, The 12 cities with the highest rates of violent crime are all Democrat-led cities. So he doesn't have necessarily an immediate solution on what's going wrong in these communities. But widely across the board, independents are where Democrats are on gun violence. So I think this could be a smart midterm strategy. That said, I think we've seen these stall in the House anytime we've tried to do even minor reforms around, um, you know, around uh, the Second Amendment. So I, I'm not sure what the legislative outcome looks like. But if he does something at the executive level, perhaps that could advance. You know, but Biden is also pushing more police, more right. funding for police. And uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, the progressive congresswoman from New York City, told The New York Times, quote, we risk reverting back to a 90s era, quote unquote, tough on crime rhetoric where policies may be rolled out to make it look like we're being responsive to public safety, but actually could potentially be making those issues worse, even if they might play well politically. Uh, she, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm not going to put words in her mouth, but perhaps the three strikes and your outlaw is one of the things she's talking about. That's a lot of people think that was bad policy. Right. What do you I, think? I think mass incarceration is not the answer. We did too much of that in the 90s. Uh, the crime bill Joe Biden wrote and Bill Clinton signed did have incentives for states to do it. It actually didn't raise the federal incarceration rate at all, but states did. And and we encouraged that, and that was wrong. And it's important for people like me who participate in that to acknowledge that. But what Joe Biden said, what Congressman Richmond said, I listened to your interview, is really progressive. It's community policing. Uh, By the way, there was a poll in the Bronx, which is part of Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's district. 81% of the citizens there said they want more cops. This is a false dichotomy to say we have to choose between civil rights and public safety. The, the stuff that Cedric was talking about, and the president was talking about, called focused deterrence, where you engage. The city of Oakland did this in 2012. They had a five-year program called Operation Ceasefire. They, they found out half the murders in that city were committed by 700 guys. Mm. That's it. So we don't have to mass incarcerate. We just have to target and engage people before they become criminals. So let's, let's try to have fewer gunmen as well as fewer guns. Well, you have my vote. Thank you all for <laughs> Appreciate it. Coming up next, airplane mode anger. Lawmakers fired up over a high-speed rollout that caused some sky-high confusion. Stay with us. And our tech lead today, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, wants to kick the United States' manufacturing of hypersonic weapons into hyperdrive as North Korea and China boldly test their new own hypersonic technology. Secretary Austin is now urging the nation's largest defense contractors to kick it up a notch and build the weapons, which can fly five times the speed of sound, making them incredibly difficult to detect. CNN space and defense correspondent Kristen Fisher joins us now. And Kristen, exactly how far behind North Korea and China is the U.S. when it comes to this technology? Well, U.S. Space Force General David Thompson put it very bluntly. He said that the U.S. has a lot of catching up to do. 
very quickly and that, you know, the U.S. hypersonic program is really in its infancy, that the Chinese and the Russians are, are much farther ahead with that technology. And so the purpose of today's meeting was really to encourage all of these major defense contractors and companies to pick up the pace, to really light a fire under that industry. And I spoke with one of the, the CEOs who attended this meeting, and he said that there were about 14 CEOs in the room. And he noted just how rare it is for a defense secretary to hold a meeting like that with top CEOs, albeit virtually. And the CEO that I spoke with said that Austin's closing message was that, you know, this hypersonics, they are absolutely serious. We need to focus on this. And he said, quote, we are distracted now by Russia, but China is the real threat. And how much money is this going to cost the United States? A lot of money. Um, the fiscal year 22 budget, 2022 budget uh, committed about $3.8 billion to hypersonic research. But the real issue here, it's not just funding this technology. It's also funding the infrastructure to test this technology. And one of the big issues that came up at this meeting, according to the CEO that I spoke with, was hypersonic wind tunnels to test hypersonic glide vehicles. And right now, the U.S. only has about a handful of them, while China has 12, and they're building about one every six months. And that also kind of plays into another big problem here, which is what the U.S. military says is this fear of failure. The U.S. has tested nine hypersonic tests over the last five years, while the Chinese have tested hundreds. All right, Kristen Fisher, good to have you in studio. First time. I know. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Uh, Now to a technology crisis averted, which still has some lawmakers angry. Today on Capitol Hill, House members demanded answers about the botched rollout of high-speed 5G cell service last month, which caused some disruptions at airports due to regulators' fears 5G signals might interfere with some pilots' landing instruments. Lawmakers grilled the FAA administrator and blasted the Federal Communications Commission. CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Montine joins us now live from Reagan National Airport. So, Pete, did did lawmakers find out who was responsible for this seemingly preventable, rather obvious screw-up? Well, really a lot of finger-pointing in this House hearing today, Jake, and really two sides argued by lawmakers. One, that the FCC really did not understand the risks associated with this 5G rollout, and two, that the FAA really did not voice its concerns about aviation safety early enough. You know, it wasn't until the 11th hour of this rollout that those two industries really started working together and that the cell phone companies agreed to slow the 5G rollout near airports. That was the target of concern. You know, House Chair Peter DeFazio, he heads this house here, had this house hearing, and he's from Oregon. He says that really it's not acceptable for agencies to have conflict like this. Here's what he said. Everybody else has taken measures to protect aviation, but we didn't until the last minute. And it's a temporary agreement, and something has to be worked out long term in the next six months. We cannot have conflicting industries. Having a dropped call is way less serious than having a dropped airplane out of the sky. Now, the head of the FCC was not at this hearing today. She had a scheduling conflict. The head of the FAA says it is continuing to work with those cell phone companies. He says that there could be a long-term solution sometime soon, but probably not until next year, Jake. Pete, um, lawmakers also wondered if people's personal cell phones are making the problem worse. So is it, is it actually critical for passengers to switch their phones, their phones to airplane mode? It's a good question because airplane mode has been required on commercial flights since about 2013. 
But the FAA says the real concern here is the 5G towers. They put off way more possible signal interference than a cell phone possibly could. The analogy is like this. A tower is like a fire hose, a phone is like a garden hose, Jake. All right, Pete Montine at Reagan National, thanks so much. Why some Republicans may get shut down and shut out if they try to push back on whomever Biden ends up nominating to the Supreme Court. That's next, stay with us. In our politics lead today, the top Democrat and Republican in the Senate meeting behind closed doors today to discuss their upcoming agenda, no doubt at the top of the list for Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, confirming President Biden's first pick to the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's get straight to CNN's Manu Raju, who's on Capitol Hill for us. And Manu, there's a a growing split on the Republican side about how to handle this nomination. Yeah, no question about it. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell is counseling his his members to take a measured approach to this nomination fight. Bet the nominee, make your points, but avoid the blistering and personal attacks and avoid the knockout down, drag out fights that we have seen in Supreme Court battles that in, in the past several go rounds. And one big reason why Republicans believe they are winning this battle to take back control of Congress in the November midterms. And they do not want to distract focus away from their message, which is the economic message as they go after the Biden administration. This is what Republican John Thune, the number two Senate Republican, told me yesterday. He said, I think it's not probably going to be the kind of event that's going to drive people to the polls, referring to the confirmation fight. He said, we think that the people that are going to determine who the majority is in the House and Senate in 2022 are going to be looking at issues like the economy and inflation and the border and crime in cities and things like that. A pretty remarkable comment there, given the last two presidents elections have been fought in large part over Supreme Court vacancies being driving issues in those campaigns. But Jake, not everyone in the Republican conference agrees. Josh Hawley, who sits on the Judiciary Committee, told me yesterday that they need to make show the Senate is that why the Senate is important. Show that to voters and fight this nomination and other conservatives also making that case. So that's going to be the challenge for Republican leaders. Battle the nomination that probably won't change the ideological battle balance of the court, but don't go too far. So it's a 50-50 Senate, uh, and Democrats are now down a key vote because Senator Ben Ray Lujan from New Mexico is recovering from a stroke. What what does a realistic timeline look for the confirmation process, given that they they need Lujan there? They do. And the likelihood at the moment is that early spring seems to be the time in which they can get this nomination confirmed because Joe Biden is expected to make that pick by the end of this month. And then they expect about a 40-day confirmation process. So that could potentially put it into April or so before we see those key votes. Now, that also, also Jake, assumes that there's not going to be any hiccups in the confirmation process, nothing that changes trajectory, that everything goes okay with Ben Ray Lujan's return, which is expected in four to six, six weeks' time. And they keep the all their votes together. And in the key moment earlier today, Jake, Joe, Joe Manchin, who's that, of course, that key West Virginia Democratic swing vote, told me he likes all of the potential swing uh, people on the short list. He calls them all good candidates. So Democrats at the moment are confident they have the votes. All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. What the Olympic experience is really like as China tries to seal off athletes and teams from everything and everyone else. We're going live to Beijing next. Stay with us. Time for our series, Behind China's Wall, in which we attempt to go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the Olympic Games. The Chinese government hopes to use the Games to distract the world from its crackdowns on freedoms, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin, one of the few world leaders headed to Beijing, is touting his relationship with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. 
saying the pair are, quote, good friends who, quote, hold largely the same views on addressing the world's promises, uh, the world's problems, unquote. CNN's David Culver joins us now live from Beijing. David, there are growing ties between these two leaders as relations with the West deteriorate for both countries. And Jake, we look now at two countries that are increasingly assertive and determined in expanding their reach, be it on land, at sea, or even in space. And in doing so, they are motivated in showing weaknesses in democracies and challenging the current world order. A mesmerizing opening ceremony expected to be attended by two strongman leaders. Chinese President Xi Jinping will soon be hosting his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin as their countries stand shoulder to shoulder in defiance of the West. Despite lingering disputes over issues such as economic interest in the Middle East, Beijing and Moscow managed to see past those differences and focus instead on one common adversary, the United States, which has launched a diplomatic boycott of the games over Beijing's human rights record. And as tensions rise between Russia and NATO over a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine, Beijing has publicly backed the Kremlin. In a recent phone call with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi stressed that Russia's reasonable security concerns should be taken seriously and resolved. This will be the 38th time that President Xi and President Putin have met face-to-face since President Xi took power here back in 2013. These frequent interactions, a sign of increasingly close bilateral ties, despite how different the two leaders are. The images tell it all. The pair in 2018 happily sampling together a traditional Chinese pancake. A few months later, they made a Russian version of the dish, complete with caviar and vodka. They visited with China's iconic pandas the following year and took in an ice hockey game. Later, basking in a sunset boat tour. The cozy China-Russia relationship not stopping the U.S. from trying to sway China on the Ukraine crisis. We are calling on Beijing to use its influence with Moscow to urge diplomacy. But analysts say Beijing sees little benefit to side with the West. What Putin and Xi Jinping have in common here is actually the desire to undercut U.S. credibility, to drive a wedge between Washington and its uh, allies. Other democracies and U.S. allies like Taiwan will be watching closely as China steps up its military activities across the Taiwan Strait. If the people in Taiwan saw that despite all of Washington's efforts and all of NATO's tough talk, that they didn't succeed in deterring Putin, they're going to ask themselves, can we on Taiwan really count on the United States in a crisis? After the U.S.'s disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, Ukraine presents the latest test on the U.S. capability to maintain global peace and security. And the outcome may further convince China and Russia of an emerging new world order that both have long sought. And Jake, even before President Putin's arrival here in Beijing, state media pushing the strong friendship between the pair, even sharing a letter from Putin to the Chinese people, and blaming countries like the U.S. for politicizing sports, even as these two leaders are expected to use the optics of the opening ceremony in just a few hours to take a strong geopolitical stance. Jake? Yeah, two authoritarians coming together uh, at the Olympics. David Culver in Beijing with the latest installment of Behind China's Wall. Thank you. Turning to our sports lead now, the opening ceremony 
of the Beijing Winter Olympic Games is just hours away. The show will likely look very different from the celebration China held for the start of the Summer Games 14 years ago. Reports suggest that some athletes may boycott the ceremony in a show of solidarity with the many victims of the Chinese government's human rights abuses. Joining us now is Adam Rippon, U.S. Olympic bronze medalist in the 2018 Games in South Korea. He's in Beijing now, coaching Olympic hopeful uh, Mariah Bell. Uh, Good to see you, Adam. Thanks for joining us. So um, I I do want to ask, the Chinese government has warned athletes uh, about censorship laws they have in China. They don't want any political comments uh, during the Games. Generally speaking, you've never been one to remain quiet. Uh, Have you heard from athletes who are concerned uh, about these limits on their speech? You know, I think like in every games, there's going to be some sort of like political talk. It's like you can't avoid it at an Olympics because you are on this world stage where everyone is watching. Um, What I really hope with these games is that like there's so much attention brought to these issues about human rights that it does put pressure on the Chinese government to really address it. Because I know that, you know, when you think about it, you're like, I why should the games even you know, why should you award the games to a country that has these things going on? Um, but I think you just hope that, like, the pressure is something that that they will address it because there's so much attention on it. The Beijing Games are being hosted inside a bubble with a bunch of COVID restrictions, daily temperature checks, etc. How different has this experience been from when you competed uh, just four years ago? Um, so, well, when I competed four years ago, um, there was no COVID. So I was just, I was literally spreading droplets to anyone who was around <laughs> me, free willy. And then I went to Tokyo and I was working in Tokyo and, you know, it was very strict. It, you know, we felt very safe here in Beijing. It's even stricter. So I feel like the athletes feel pretty safe. Um, when you get to the airport here, there's two different COVID tests that you take. You take like an oral swab and a nasal swab. And Jake, I don't know if you've ever felt like the pressure of feeling like you're about to lose your uvula, but I did feel like that was going to happen when I took the oral test. And then when I took the nasal one, she went so deep into my brain that when she pulled it out, there was like, it was, I, listen, I, this is CNN, so I'm going to share the real details. There was blood coming out. And I just I want to share with you that I was negative. So um, but at what cost, I guess? I'm glad you were negative. I've never had that experience. Either of the ones you described. Um, I wouldn't wish it on you either. Well, thank you. I I wouldn't wish it again on you. I mean, this must be impacting the mood inside the Olympic Village. You know, I think here at the Olympics that um, COVID, especially in like these sports, that are here right now, they've lived in these COVID times for the past two years. And to be here at an Olympics is something that you dream of. You know, you can't dream of the circumstances and you can't change them. But I know for the athletes in Tokyo, they were so happy to even just have an Olympics after it was postponed. And I think the athletes here are just so focused on what their job is when they come here and um that's their main focus and their main focus is having like the best experience that they can and the and these athletes will they showed up prepared they're ready to go you're in beijing as we noted because you're coaching u.s olympic figure skater mariah bell her family and supporters are not able to be there with her uh how is she doing uh is she doing okay without her family and supporters 
Uh, yes, she's doing great. So in the ladies event, you know, it can be a really um, young event. There's a lot of teenagers and Mariah, my student, obviously I have the oldest girl here because I was like, listen, being old is amazing. And when I say old, I do mean that she's 25 and she is the oldest female skater from the U.S. to come to an Olympic Games in 94 years. And if that doesn't make you want to just drop dead on the spot, I don't know what will. But she's great, and um, she's having the time of her life. Well, Adam, uh, you are a, a delight to have on the show. Uh, we are uh, going to be celebrating. I'm going to be rooting especially hard for Mariah because of you uh, and, your, and your celebration of her. Thanks so much. Best of luck to you uh, and to Mariah, of course. Thanks, Jake. Thanks so much. Adam Rippon in Beijing, thanks so much. So as if the melting hair dye wasn't embarrassing enough uh, for Rudy Giuliani, his latest moment in front of the cameras, that's next. Topping our pop culture lead today, it ain't over till the big lie push and disgraced lawyer sings. That's how that saying goes, right? A source tells CNN last night, two hosts of the Masked Singer game show on Fox, Ken Jeong and Robin Thicke, walked off stage in protest during a taping after Rudy Giuliani was revealed to be one of the Masked contestants. The Masked Singer, for those who don't know, is a popular Fox reality show where contestants perform in full costume, singing and dancing like the one you're seeing here from a previous season, up until the judges give them the boot. And then their identities are revealed. Ken Jeong and Robin Thicke have not commented publicly. Memo to ABC. I mean, I have an idea for the next season of The Bachelor, a contestant who's eager to go on such shows. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. And if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. How about that? Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer who I believe is right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.